Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. This is another one of the Commonwealth Club's online programs where we are discussing the work of several famous authors. And tonight we have with us David Bodanis, and he's coming to us direct from London. And we are going to be discussing many, many different books that he's written. But in addition to that, I wanted to talk about his work as a futurist, um, especially with the, the pandemic going on. Uh, it seems to me that, you know, we businesses everywhere are, are under a, a particularly unusual stressor uh, that's giving them a, an idea and everybody an idea about what's necessary, what's not necessary, um, what's working, and also uh, a little bit of how we all enjoy all these extra luxuries and services that everybody has been putting on, but they can disappear um, and, and that that really has a huge effect. So I know that this is part of your income stream, and so I don't want you to, to uh, say anything that, that you know, will we'll cut into that. But if you could give us a little idea about how you think business is going to react to this in the future and, and, and what, what you would predict for the future um, as a result of this. It turns out there's a one uh, people who are futurists um, and do scenarios they try to be very vague about their predictions, you know, for obvious reasons. However, I'm going to make an exception. I'm going to predict that tomorrow in the Financial Times, I'm going to have an article. <laughs> it's true because we edited it today and the editor told me it's in tomorrow. And the, to, the article's about exactly the question you raised. Um, you know, in, uh, in chess, uh, uh, pieces, a lot of people, pieces move in a straight line or at an angle, but there's one piece, the knight, the horse, that moves in this really funny way. It moves, you know, one direction and then veers to the side, and you, suddenly you end up in a different place. You always end up on a square of a different color. You can leap over things. You're not incredibly far away. It's not like the, uh, uh, the, the rook or the, the queen that can go the whole length of the board, but you're just in a slightly new position. And I thought, so the piece is called, uh, it's about the knight's move. And all of us with the, uh, with the coronavirus are sort of in that position. Um, a, a company won't go into an entirely different field. A, an energy company isn't going to start making hamburgers or vice versa. However, an energy company or a restaurant uh, chain or whatever will be forced to make this sort of night's move. In Silicon Valley, it's the famous pivot. You know, people often start up uh, selling something. It doesn't quite work. And they realize, say, their underlying technology is something that can be used in a different direction. That's the, they pivot and uh, it can do well. Uh, Twitter is a, is a famous example. There's others. And usually that only happens under necessity. That only happens when you've really, really pushed hard in one field and it's slowly gotten blocked. You know that famous phrase that you should reinforce uh, victory and uh, uh, leave a defeat? Well, it makes sense. But when do you know that it's a defeat? If you have a startup or you have a division, it's not working that well. You know you don't want to be flighty. You want to really push on it. Anyways, now with the virus, all of us are forced to pivot, almost all of us. Uh, I believe debt collectors are, 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 are still doing uh, fairly well. Um, and, and there's some people on, on private islands in the Pacific. Uh, and before that, nobody liked them. And even now, nobody likes them. So, so they've, <laughs> they've remained the same. But anyway, so we're all forced to be in this new setting. And you might say, well, there's bad things about being in a new setting. You don't have the exact same skill set before. You don't have the same contacts. On the other hand, there's wonderful advantages. Uh, everybody else is sort of a fresh. They're sort of in a new setting. Think, I don't know, of a Midwesterner who uh, moves to London, like me. <laughs> Suddenly, instead of being another corn plant in the Midwest, I have this, I, I'm not saying it's a superior perspective, but it's a fresh perspective. 
So if your firm or even just your division or even the way that you work is making you go into a slightly uh, different domain, be it working from home or trying to sell a different product or using different financial instruments or um, uh, just changing your service, well, you're kind of forced to do that and you have a fresh perspective. Because when you enter this new domain, you land on it, like landing on a new square on a chessboard, and you look around, but it's not that far from where you landed. So you have some of your skills applied, but you're doing it in a fresh and different direction. You have a, your old tools apply well in a fresh area. As you know, before writing about business and stuff, I used to uh, write about science. And one of the great things um, that makes a good scientist a creative is when they can jump into a new field. Because when they jump into a new field, they bring their tools from the old field. They have this great advantage. Now, if you're stuck in the way, you say, this is the way we do it. It's never going to change. But if you're not that stuck in the way, you say, ah, you know, everybody here is doing this. Let me see if I can apply this other principle or this other tool. So for a brief moment, all of us will have this lovely, fresh advantage. Yeah. And and we'll see how long that moment lasts. Uh, I mean, we... we it seems to me after 9-11, of course, there was a, a lot of reaction, a lot of fear, and, and, and that fear really hasn't completely gone away at all. We're still reacting with more fear than we did before. Um, but this seems to be an even bigger uh, problem because then it was worrying about, you know, the possibility of a terrorist attack, which is a very minor thing. This, is, this isn't a possibility. Everyone knows that this virus is spreading and that there's really some things we can do to slow it down, but nothing we can do to stop it yet. So um, it... it probably will have an even bigger effect. It's interesting to me um, what the businesses will have to do and, and also how it will affect uh, governments. And it's, you know, it's coming at, at not a good time in terms of, even though we've been thriving, but there seems to be a lot of um, long-term issues that we've let uh, fester underneath the surface that, that come out. You know, as what was it Warren Buffett that said, uh, you, you find out who's been swimming without a bathing suit when the tide goes out. You know, so, so it seems like a lot of that is going to go on. Um, but um, is there any is there any other element of that that you think uh, will will drive business? Like some businesses, like online retailers, probably will do even better than before. For example, uh, not just debt collectors. Um, so uh, I'm not going to ask you to give a stock tip. We'll, we'll go into some other ideas. <laughs> sure, no, no, but you're entirely right. So there, there's some which are happening now, which are the services that we need during this time, which are doing well, uh, online retailers, um, uh, 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 certain aspects of, of loans and certain aspects of insurance are, are, are quite important. There, there's interesting innovations going on with, with, with bonds and, and other sort of investments. Um, but when we land in the new world, it, it'll be a little bit like the Knights move. It'll be similar, but not that similar. So, for example, five or 10 years after 9-11, in one sense, America was unchanged. Uh, daily life had many similarities. On the other hand, there were things that were taken for granted, uh, greater security at airports, um, a Department of Homeland Security, all, uh, uh, all sorts of other matters that became sort of second nature. Um, and as you pointed out, this, in a sense, is larger than that, than that one event, however uh, extreme that event was. I like to think of it as if you take uh, two stones, say flat stones from, a, from a, the bottom of a shallow river, and if you push them together medium hard, if one jerks off to the side, it flies a little bit. But if you push them really, really, really hard, and one flies off to the side, it's going to go a terrific distance. So the more intense the experience, the more intense the uh, extreme the follow-ups will be. So uh, uh, after, um, uh, after a moderate uh, political or environmental upset, you want security. 
Um, on the other hand, you're willing to make a fresh start. Think of a tornado. I, I come from, uh, uh, I, my mother's uh, family was on a farm in Ohio in the, in the famous uh, tornado belt, uh, Southern Ohio. And uh, after a tornado, on the one hand, people really, they turn to their community, which is can be warm and supportive. They can also be angry at other people who uh, survived the tornado, who, who weren't involved. Mm. So you can respond in different directions. And if it's an even greater effect, uh, a greater impact, the, the effects will be greater. So after this, we can have a response, for example, like the one after World War I, where the U.S. really freaked about uh, uh, foreign dangers, the, the famous yeah. uh, acts against what were called uh, terrorists of the time, many of whom were totally innocent uh, union organizers. Um, or on the other hand, you can have the response as there was uh, set up during and after World War II in uh, Britain and America, where you got the National Health Service in, uh, in Britain and the uh, GI Bill and things like that in America. But the intensity is great. It's, it's sort of like in chemistry. There's an activation uh, barrier, a sort of activation energy you have to cross. For example, um, uh, uh, when you light a match, you have to strike hard enough, which is why famously if it's matchbox is wet or you're distracted, it, it doesn't ignite. But once you cross that threshold and it takes off, then it really itself sustains. So, but the question is, what direction will it take off? Uh, uh, which direction will self-sustain after this? Clearly, people want a big change. It could be that we now are aware of the uh, uh, the physical significance of the planet around us. It isn't something that you watch on a David Attenborough documentary or something you maybe notice if you go on a, on a weekend away. It's something that really impinges. People are also getting some notion of feedback loops and, and how quickly exponential uh, growth occurs. Uh, and so that could lead to a feeling of, wow, carbon is next. If this is what a virus can do in the feedback loops, who knows what carbon can do? Uh, you know, uh, uh, unleashing, say, uh, methane from uh, uh, from uh, permafrost in Siberia and other places. On the other hand, um, some people might respond to, uh, uh, to to the virus by saying, I know what we have to do. Duh. We have to attack everybody else who's not like us because that'll make things a lot better. Luckily, right. the United States does not have leadership like that. Otherwise, I would be worried for the future. <laughs> Yeah, you got me on that one. Um, so uh, it, it seems to me um, that uh, a lot of, at least we've, we've gotten a lot of cooperation throughout the world with this idea that we can shut down our economies in order to save our health. There's much more cooperation than I would have expected. Um, there's yes. certainly a lot of non-cooperation. Um, and, and I think it also shows some of the similarities we have. For example, uh, a lot of governments that we complain about are authoritarian governments that flirt with democracy. Um, but we have a democracy that flirts with authoritarianism. Um, and so we, we, it, it brings us a little bit closer together in terms of how we do things. Um, we're, we're, nobody really has given up on authoritarianism yet. Um, and mm -hmm. it, 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 but we'll, we'll get to that idea a little later because you, in, in one of uh, your, your ideas in, in uh, Einstein's book, it's about observational democracy and that, that idea. And what, I want to get to that a little bit later. Um, sure. If we if we go to Einstein's, I mean, I thought it was very bold of you, of course, uh, to to uh, write a book called Einstein's Greatest Mistake, <laughs> but but I thought that was perfect, and and it's actually exactly on point. And I was wondering while you were talking earlier whether from that book you took as part of your toolkit to the to the future stuff this idea that you can get stuck um, in an idea. Um, you talk about him as uh, someone who's a genius has to be both supple and 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 innovative. And also stubborn because usually they've got to push against 
a major idea for a long yeah. time. And if they yes. don't get the balance just right, and, and you think his biggest mistake was that he, he got stubborn because of certain things. So right. if you, you just tell that story a little bit. Uh, it, it, it's a great book. Uh, it's, it's won lots of prizes and all that, and it's done very, very well. Um, I, but it's a great story, and I think you, you tell it in a very different way than a lot of biographies of, of, Einstein. of Einstein. Oh, sure. So I, I'm very happy. Let me recount the story. And then at the end, if you can cue me and remind me that we can talk about analogies in, in politics today. Um, I, I, actually, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just hint at the analogy. In politics, have you noticed that when somebody comes into power, they'll often be very exciting and do uh, stuff at the beginning, which often works. But then people, they get sort of stale. And one reason is to get into a high political position uh, and, or the head of a company or the head of a state or whatever, um, you, you have to push really hard. And uh, uh, so you, even if you have a good idea, you've pushed really hard. So when you're there, you, you, you implement the idea, but you've been so used to pushing hard in that direction that if it turns out the implications are such that it's beginning to not work very well or that you should go in a different direction, it's really hard to change. Sort of like if there's been a, a car that's been revving, revving really long and finally gets to move forward, it's going to be hard to turn it at a 40-degree angle, let alone a 90-degree angle. Well, if there's a car moving more slowly, it's different. Anyways, so that, that's the political analogy. So going back to Einstein, yeah. Einstein was a bright boy. Um, uh, to, have one theory of rel- <laughs> to have one theory of relativity is good. He had two theories of relativity, and he got mm-hmm. the Nobel Prize not even for the theory of relativity. He was really awesome. Uh, at one point, uh, uh, in one of the most tired, exhausted moments of his life, he was in his late 30s in Berlin in 1916. He had just completed what we'll talk about in a moment, the general theory of relativity. He was beyond exhausted. He was in bed a lot. And he kind of came up one weekend with an idea which he published, which was maybe his 11th or 12th best idea. It was the idea behind the laser. So mm-hmm. his like 11th or 12th best idea when he was exhausted was was the laser. So the, the man was awesome. <laughs> Not too bad. Um, it took him a while to get going. He knew he had uh, fresh ideas. His little sister uh, was uh, thought he was uh, uh, terrific, and his mother thought, well, her son was was, was absolutely terrific. Um, and one of the things that helped him get going was that he was a bit of an outsider, but not too much of an outsider. Uh, the great Rabbi Hillel once said that if you um, have a, a pile of uh, logs that are burning or pieces of wood that are burning, if you take one piece of wood away from the fire, for a brief moment, it'll flare up brighter than all the rest. He didn't know about oxygen, but the effect is well known. However, if you keep it away for too long, after a while, it dies down. It becomes just cinders. It's nothing. Well, it's the same thing like that with good education and creativity. You need to be well-educated. Uh, despite the, the common myths, Einstein actually did well at secondary school and, and he did quite well at university. By the way, I traced back the story the, you know, where did people get the idea that Einstein was a terrible student? And I traced yeah. it back to the noted Einstein scholar, Sylvester Stallone, <laughs> who one, had, his, uh, uh, had his wife, the woman who played his wife or girlfriend or sister, uh, say that Einstein had been a terrible student. Uh, I admire Stallone very much, uh, both for what steroids can do and, um, and, uh, and also for the quality of some of his films. But as an Einstein scholar, he's not up there in the first. So Einstein was a good student, but not an incredible student. What he had that was distinctive was two things. One is that he said he had the persistence of a mule. Uh, When he was a little boy, when he'd make card castles, he'd make a layer of cards and then another layer on top of it and another on top of that. And if somebody opened the door and the wind knocked them over, Mm. he'd shrug 
take his time and start again. Persistence of the mm-hmm. mule. The other thing he had was this, we think of him as this funny old man or like really wise or, or slowly spoken. That's because his English was terrible. He was, <laughs> his, French, his French was almost as bad. It was really embarrassing. Um, he, he tried one speaking Spanish. He said he would try to speak French and just put an O at the end of everything and leave. <laughs> Incomprehensible, but because he was Einstein, people respected. Anyways, but he had this nice German Jewish sense of humor. The time when he was really at his peak was Berlin, 1920s, 19 teens. That was really his cool uh, method, his cool era. And the, as an example of the humor, I can mention his younger sister, Amaya. When, uh, when uh, she and Einstein were, were little, little children, at one point he got really angry at her and he got a big, heavy rubber ball and threw it at her and hit her in the head. And she wrote about that later. And she said, you know, that shows it takes a thick skull to be the sister of a world famous physicist. <laughs> and I love that sort of humor. It's, uh, you always can take a twist, come in from a fresh angle. So when Einstein was in his uh, late teens and early 20s, he was a good student. And then he got a, a job at the uh, patent office, which is very cool. Uh, it, people say it's a backwater. But you can imagine being the patent office in, say, in Silicon Valley, seeing the new stuff coming in. Very, very cool. And he was into electrical engineering then. So it was really cutting edge. But it was hard to put his ideas together. And then suddenly when he was around 24 and then around 25, it all came together. At one point, he said it was like a, a, an electric storm in his head, a thunderstorm had finally burst and it was clear. The sky was clear afterwards. And for about, I'd say for about 20 years, he was on a roll. One good idea after another. And these were just terrific ideas, as good as anyone since since, since Isaac Newton uh, and, and with much more personal charm also. Also, That was one of the things you covered. Sorry, just to, to break in here, but um, that was one of the things you covered in the book that gave me a totally different view on, on, on Einstein. Um, because, as you said, we think of him as an old man. In fact, most people that are famous, if they live long enough, we, we get that impression of them that they're, they're old men. Mm-hmm. But they do almost do all of their major work when they're in their 20s and 30s. And, and right. you, you, you present him as you know, having an open marriage and, and a lot of girlfriends and stuff like that. Don't, people don't think of Einstein that way. He was a charming guy that went out sailing and took, took you know, ladies with him and so on and so forth. I, yes. I, thought, I thought that was a very different view of him. Yeah, he, he, in that sense, he, he was a real person. I mean, his son uh, used to dr- drive him around on motorcycles outside of uh, you know uh, Berlin and stuff, and he was very cool on that. And when he did have affairs, uh, at one point, his, uh, uh, his housekeeper from this uh, house that he had outside of Berlin on a lake where he kept his boat, um, the housekeeper was interviewed later, said, oh, Professor Einstein, oh, the ladies over there were always laughing. They had such a good time. They were, they, they were so friendly. And, and he was perfectly polite to his wife. He, you know, he didn't, he was really kind to his wife. At one point, his yeah. son said uh, about uh, Einstein's second wife, not, it was, it was so the stepmother of the son. When the son was a young adult, he said, Dad, Elsa's not really a brain box, is she? And Einstein said, well, maybe she's not a brain box, but she has a good heart. She's a good person. So he really respected her. You know, but he just had the dignity to keep his affairs uh, uh, separate. Anyways, but yeah. this... Uh, the key idea that drove him, so he had the persistence and he came in from a fresh angle with that, with that humor. Instead of, if any problem was, was posed that people were stuck on, he would try to come in at a different angle. And, but the core idea underlying much of what he did was this notion that was centuries old in the West, which is that everything has a clear, rational, logical explanation. That if I, I might be confused, but if I get really down into the details, I can see things that are happening really clearly. And if I can't see things really clearly, well, it's a fault because we don't have the knife, uh, the good enough, con- the sophisticated enough concepts 
or um, or we don't have enough uh, technical tools. An example there, so we feel that way, say, about family therapy. We feel if there's a problem inside a family, if we really could understand the root causes, we could see clearly what it is. Somebody has yeah. these sorts of issues or somebody was traumatized, you know, it, and, it's, and, and often that's the case. So in much of the Einstein's work with relativity and his work with, uh, um, with, with, many other, with many other matters, he did really well taking this approach. And then, as, as indeed you know, George, in the, uh, especially in the 1920s, uh, a lot of physicists began to think that on the super microscopic level, on the, on the famous quantum level, things were different. That, uh, that the, the movement of uh, certain electrons, these you know, little particles uh, inside atoms, were just almost random. Uh, we couldn't predict exactly what we were, how they were going. We could describe what they were doing, and we could maybe give a, a probability that they moved in a certain way, but that we couldn't find the details. And Einstein thought, well, that's fine. We've been there before many times. It's just that we, if we had better microscopes, perhaps we could see better, or if we had like, better analytic tools. Think of trying to understand a family before you had, say, Freudian understanding or, um, uh, or, or m- many of the later therapists and stuff. So Einstein was open-minded about this. He said, oh, just, we don't have enough details. And many scientists believed him in the mid-1920s and the late 1920s. But then it became more and more clear, the evidence became clearer and clearer, that it wasn't like that at all. That if you really stared really, really hard at this detailed level, uh, you would never be able to find something clear. That it was the nature of things was to have these sort of sudden jolts that we couldn't predict. Um, now, many people, almost everybody, uh, one of the people that Einstein uh, uh, was friends with was a young physicist named uh, de Broglie, um, who, when he was young in the 1920s, I didn't exist. But when de Broglie was an old man in the 1970s, I was a youngster living in Paris, and I got to meet him. He was a prince, and literally a prince. Uh-huh. And I got to meet him in this beautiful townhouse uh, in Paris. And he described one time when he and Einstein were at the uh, Gare du Nord, the train station in Paris, and uh, de Broglie had just come back from a conference. He was one of the last people still believed with Einstein that everything could be clear and rational and there'd be no sudden gaps, that if there were sudden jumps, it was just a limitation of our understanding. But he began to think, no, it's not like that. It's different. And he said to Einstein, look at the experimental evidence. It's, it's really clear. And Einstein paused and he said, ah, can you really trust the experiments? And that leads into the second part of my book. I won't go into the details of it now. We have much to cover. But very briefly, on a di- in a different field, in the field of cosmology, dealing with large structures in space and time, Einstein had once made a prediction, and the, uh, all the experimentalists in the world said, no, your prediction's wrong. So he said, are you sure? This was the famous hub. Uh, and, and they said, right. um, uh, they said yeah, it, it's unambiguous. For example, in, in this particular case, Einstein had predicted from his theory that the universe would be expanding. And all the greatest right. scientists in the uh, late 19-teens said, no, sorry, unambiguous, the universe is static. Um, there's our galaxy, and outside is a large void, sort of like the brains of certain political leaders uh, 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 that, that we're aware of today, just with like a magnetic fields, sound and fury, signifying very, very little. Um, and I said, are you sure? They said yes. So he cancels his theory. And then about 10 years later, uh, Hubble in California and others showed that... Oh, the, th- the experiments were wrong. In fact, the universe is expanding. Einstein apparently said, so that was my greatest mistake, the biggest blunder of my life. So he resolved he wasn't going to be burned again. If he had simply stuck to his guns about cosmology, about the expansion of the universe, he would have been proven right. He just had to take a deep breath and wait 10 years. So he felt deep inside, he felt the, the microscopic structure of the world has to be super clear. 
It has to be rational and, and with no sudden jumps. And although the evidence seems to be against me, well, once before the evidence was against me and I made the mistake of not sticking to my principles, this time I'm going to stick to my principles. And until he died, which was 30 years later, he lived into his 70s, he still thought that maybe, maybe, just maybe he'd be redeemed by history, that someday, perhaps after his death, people would, uh, would find that he'd been right to stick to his principles. And this one case, sadly, the great Albert Einstein was wrong. No. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's the principle that he had of cause and effect, as you wrote it, uh, that, that he, he was relying on and sticking to. Um, it's interesting because he did early uh, work on f photons and the wave particle, what became wave particle duality theory. And bef before I go there, I want one of the things that's very interesting about the fact of the galaxy, you know, our galaxy, that we've only known for a hundred years Correct. that there's something besides the Milky Way. All our scientists thought the Milky Way, that was it, that was the whole universe. And, and it's now trillions of times larger or something like that, right? So, so uh, we, we should be a little bit modest about, about uh, whether we've come to the end of our information uh, you know, that we can collect. But um, in, in thinking about that wave-particle duality, I think if, you, if we were huge, much bigger than the solar system, and the Earth was not seeable by us, um, so that we, it was outside of our thing, but we had a theory about the Earth, and the Earth was a particle that moved in a wave around the sun, and since the sun is moving, then the Earth is a particle moving around. And we had that all down, and we said, okay, it's going to be like this, and it all came out, except for there were some times when the Earth particle was outside the wave that we predicted, right? Yeah. And, and we didn't know what to do about that. And maybe we didn't know about the moon. You know, like the moon was not in our theory. And the moon Correct. would be enough to move the Earth particle outside of its wave function. That, that's exactly it. What you're describing is called the hidden variable theory. The notion that right. the things that seem mysterious jumps, correct, we're noticing jumps, but they're only mysterious because of the lack of our understanding. Unfortunately, uh, experiments, both ideas and then practical experiments after Einstein's death, made it clear that the hidden variable theory in this case doesn't hold, that there is no exactly. such thing as a little moon bouncing it around. But you see how plausible it was for him to believe in that. Exactly what I was saying, yeah. Yes. And uh, again, without... Uh, uh, comparing everything back to, uh, to business or politics, you can see that many people, when, they're, uh, when their businesses are stretched, they say, okay, come on, it's going to be a, it went down, it's going to come up, we'll go back where we were, we'll do what we did before, but even better. If we had a certain, say, a, a bookstore, and a, a physical bookstore, uh, and it, we had a good selection and good outreach with the community, we'll have even more outreach with the community and more hands-on selling and stuff, hoping that what worked in the past will work in the future. In some cases, that really holds. Uh, for example, like speaking loudly to a child sometimes will get the child's attention. Um, but as we know, there comes a point when it doesn't work. No, and, and what you say, I mean, I, I did mergers and acquisitions as a lawyer for many, many years. And, and most CEOs of the company that's buying the other company assumes that just with good leadership, all their problems can be solved. And, yeah. of course, yes, they are it. the good leadership. And the, the yes. statistics do not back them up. <laughs> well, well, sometimes I, I, it works. Yeah, I suppose probably in M and A that was that would be one of the emotionally hard things for people to accept, to think that oh I'm setting up something which is exciting to set up you know plus lucrative, and the statistically it might not be it's it's like likely not to work. Did you? Uh, I know we're talking in my direction, but but I'm actually fascinated. Was there, did you find any analogies there when people stuck to it past evidence? 
no, never, uh, because the, the CEOs all, all believe in themselves, not all, but you have to believe in yourself a lot to be, end up being a CEO of a big company. And so rarely, um, you know, I, I have some funny stories, but we can't go into all those. They're just too funny. But I, I agree with you that, that that factual, you know, facts don't ever get in the way of the theory if, if, if the human psychology is behind the theory. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I don't I don't think that that really and, and enough of them work 35, 45. I think it's a minority, but somewhere in that range, it comes out to be to, to have a positive effect on the overall thing. So there's enough success that, you know, if you if you took most of these people were, you know, in the top four or five percent of their classes, that kind of thing. So if you tell them mm -hmm. there's a 35 or 45 percent chance that you're going to you, you can make this work, they say, well, I'm certainly in that range. You know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm in the top 10 percent. So it is not a problem. Sure. Yeah, yeah I, I think I, I, it hasn't really yeah. gotten in their way at all, the, the, those facts. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I suppose one of the, the things about the uh, coronavirus is that it's, it's, it's actual reality. You can't manipulate away from it. Uh, so in right. the short term, uh, people who, uh, who uh, either don't tell the truth or uh, lying is an extreme word. People who want to believe that, yeah, I always nailed it before. I always managed to be in like the top three or four percent or one percent right. of my class. I can do it again. It's, it's when there's sharp, brutal reality that, that it blocks you. I remember once when uh, my kids were in secondary school, uh, one of their friends was at the airport and um, was flying from London to America, and they needed a visa with a three-month uh, – they needed a, a British passport that still had three months to go. And their passport the, – not my kids, but this other friend – the passport only has something like two months and three weeks to go. So the person at the airport said, oh, sorry, you can't get on the flight. And the kids said, oh, well, that's okay. We'll, we'll phone my dad and he'll work it out. He'll speak to the school, you know, and stuff. And he wasn't a braggart. He's just, that's what you do. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. You can't come on the flight. And the yeah. kid freaked. It had never, he had never met that brute reality. Uh, people who've dealt with floods uh, sometimes uh, uh, feel the same exasperation and exhaustion. I, I, for, uh, for my latest book, I interviewed some military leaders who had actually had to deal with flood relief and stuff like that. Well, a physical opponent at times will get tired. A physical opponent will have a psychology. And even in the short term, unless it's like, I don't know, a nuclear war, you can often spin it in a certain way. But floodwaters never stop. It could be two in the morning. If the pressure is going and the sandbag is going to burst, it's going to burst. And it's, it's mm -hmm. utterly remorseless. You can't talk your way away from it. You can't spin yeah. away. You can't say, well, maybe this time the laws of physics will be different. Sadly, it's not. Well, the other interesting part about this uh, crisis, um, for, for me anyway, and for international business, is that there are going to be labs all around the world that are, are working on the vaccine, working on uh, antibody tests and all that kind of thing. And the best ones will probably rise to the top pretty quickly. And, and that will show that the spread of, of education across the whole uh, planet has been an extremely useful thing to everybody because it's going to speed up the, the recovery by several years, probably. And I, yes. I just think yes. that's going to be a, a very, like you said, reality. The reality is that we have this uh, foe that we really can't talk out of anything, but we can maybe outsmart, you know, that's. And, and, and that's beautiful. So, you know, in many of the uh, disaster movies that people uh, uh, watch, which I love watching and stuff, I sit on the sofa and veg out. There's always these scenes where international councils get together in a lab somewhere else or a bright youngster somewhere else uh, intervenes. And people kind of like it in the way that in romantic comedies, remember, uh, or, uh, uh, comedies always have to end usually with a fertility ritual. And before the couple get together in romantic comedies, the crowd usually helps them. You know, so the crowd joins together and carries somebody right. past difficult traffic or lifts somebody along uh, and stuff. And um, we love that. 
we love the notion of uh, of people coming together, even if we're cynical and you know uh, yeah. uh, don't believe it all the time. If we at the moment the coronavirus is a work in progress, certainly mankind's responses. But if it turns out that there's international collaboration to make the end work, um, people that's going to be very very hard to break down. In the same way, uh, in 1945, it's almost inconceivable in Britain or America or or the Netherlands or, or Norway to think that international collaboration isn't the way forward. Clearly, that's you, you couldn't have survived uh, right. against Germany without it. So it may you might uh, uh, want to make sure that the United Nations works better than the League of Nations or the the World Health Organization was set up at that time and uh, some precursors for the World Trade Organization. You want to make sure they work well, but the idea was, was sort of unquestioned because you you had seen it operating. So I would love, so now after this, if we say, oh, should we support uh, uh, education around the world? Should we have bright key people come to Stanford or, or Cal Berkeley and then move back and forth? The answer is, my God, yes, we want them available. We want them all kind of sharing. So that that's that's one way it can spin out. Of course, if the collaboration doesn't work that way, or if it does and people are being malevolent, they'll try to spin it in a different way. Yeah, exactly. Now, you're, you're great in all of your books about science, telling human stories like you just did here and bringing it to the human level. And I wanted to mention two because I thought they, they were both great stories. Um, one was about Henrietta Leavitt, about how she discovered the... Uh, the Cepheid stars, and then uh, with her calculations, and that that really gave us the, the size of the universe in the early 1920s, something like that. And mm-hmm. maybe maybe just tell her story a little bit because she she got the usual treatment women got uh, at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, it, it's really sad. You read about injustices, and then you and then you read about injustices. And one yeah. of the one of the pleasures of being uh, uh, of writing about history is you get to redeem the past. Admittedly, it's not as good as uh, going back into the past, intervening. And, and <laughs> I would have, I've always, uh, I was once asked on a, on a program somewhere else, if I could go back, what would I do? You know, and one thing would be, can you imagine showing uh, uh, Nelson Mandela in his prison cell, a headline from 25 years in the future uh, of what was going to happen, the good things, right. just, just to hold the faith, just to, just to know it's going to be in there or something, you know, or people in the civil yeah. rights movement to know what was ultimately going to happen. Um, so anyway, so Henrietta Leavitt was a woman um, in the in the early 20th century who um, had a peculiar uh, job title. It, it turns out in the 19 uh, teens and 20s, computers weren't electronic devices. Computers were people who sat down and computed. And it was low paid and they were usually women. So she worked for an observatory based in Harvard. And the, what the sad thing is her boss, he wasn't a sexist monster. He wasn't like Harvey Weinstein. He was a yeah. decent person who would be fairly friendly but the assumption was that women were much lower cogs in the machine. It'd be like somebody who's never rude to a servant, but just assumes, well, you're inherently a servant. There's no way you can be educated like my old children. Um, so, so that was Levitt's position. And she was given one of the dull jobs of categorizing the brightness of different stars uh, in our galaxy. And they were beginning to get telescopes to see into other galaxies. And she noticed something uh, uh, quite wonderful. Uh, you know, sometimes at night you can't quite tell how far away a light in the in the sky is. Is it an airplane really far away, or is it a, some sort of like a, a kid's balloon that's nearby? You can't tell. But suppose uh, airplanes all had, or suppose it's like it could. Is it like a small airplane nearby, or is it a big airplane far away? But suppose every airplane flickered it, fl- flashed its lights on and off at a certain uh, fixed rate, and then you would be able to tell. Oh, I see. If it's a, if it's really bright. I know uh, that it's uh, close. 
And if it's, um, and if it's far, sorry, I, how to explain it super clearly. Um, so suppose I know that at a distance of say three miles, it's going to have a certain brightness because it's flickering at a, at, at a certain rate. And I say, oh, I see. That's the one that's going to have level 10 brightness at three miles. Well, if it's flickering at that rate and the brightness is greater, I know it's closer. If it's flickering at that rate and the brightness is less, I know it's further. So it's a way of using a, um, a measuring stick. And in this case, instead of just measuring the distance of an airplane uh, um, in the sky above you, she could measure the entire universe. She found that there were certain stars they were sort of like a, a pan of uh, porridge, to use the, the sticky English glutinous word. And, you know, if you have <laughs> sticky porridge, oats and stuff, it bubbles up, bubbles up, and it, and it, it sits, the bubbles are below the surface, and then, bloop, you get a, a, the, the surface leaps up and stuff. Well, there are certain stars called Cephide variables where they're constructed like that. There's this very roughly, this is just an analogy, pressure and tension builds up, and then, ooh, there's an eruption of bright colors, and it goes down. And they do it on certain cycles. Um, and she was able to find what the absolute brightness of these were. So if the cycle was like every 10 days, they went up and down in brightness, they knew she knew the absolute brightness was, say, a level five. Um, mm-hmm. So that meant, wow, if there was one that had this cycle of 10 days and it was uh, much uh, uh, brighter than level five, that meant it was really close. And if it was much uh, uh, dimmer than level five, then it was far away. And she was able mm-hmm. to measure some that were really dim, but but they were at this level that they seem to be producing a lot of brightness. So if there's something that you know is producing inherently a lot of brightness, but it's really dim, you can only draw a wrong conclusion. Like suppose you know that fireflies always have, I don't know, say, I don't know, a three-watt output. I, I know they don't. It's much less. But suppose they yeah. do. And then you see what's clearly a firefly, but it's only giving like a tenth of a watt output. So you think, gosh, I must be seeing that firefly from really far away. She did her calculations. Do you know where the star was? It was a different galaxy. She'd been able to find the distances. She was able to find the distance between galaxies. She's the one who, as much as anybody, helped understand that the shape of the universe isn't our galaxy and then a void, but our galaxy and then another galaxy. And then, of course, you do the analogies going further. This was really impressive. It turned out she also had a disability. She was, uh, she was hard of hearing, uh, and after a while, she was totally deaf. She had a wonderful response to her disability. It was a called, so what? Which I thought was, was a really nice response. You know, they always say it takes two people to make you feel bad about yourself. One person saying insulting things and the other person you to accept it. She didn't accept it. Uh, she got much of her own uh, uh, research. She had to do it in uh, outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And she was using slides that came from, a, um, Harvard had a large uh, a telescope at that point in uh, uh, Arequipa in uh, Peru. She never got to Peru. She always used to dream about it. Maybe she could go there. Maybe she could help the astronomers. Maybe she could suggest yeah. new things to do. And her lab director said, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's really, it's not for women. Anyways, after she died, her best friend from the lab, a woman, sailed down to South America, landed in Peru, took the train up to Arequipa, and went to the observatory. And she wrote in her journal, ah, oh, I'm seeing the stars. Just what my friend Henrietta would have loved. And now Henrietta lives. Yeah, yeah it's, it's such a wonderful story. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. And the other one, totally different. I, I want to uh, go from Henrietta to Madame du Châtelet uh, next, but with this one little detour before we leave Einstein's friends. Um, Niels Bohr and uh, George de Hevesy were in a boarding house 
Um, yes, they, I love they, it. They, 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 they're like a frat boys trick on their landlady, and I, I just think it's you know it, it was just such a great thing what they did. They, they didn't. Yeah, this was in the 19 teens. Uh, Nels Bohr was, was Danish. Uh, he he apparently spoke one language, and in, in any whether he was speaking English or Danish or French or whatever, he would speak really bad, slow Danish, but just with these different <laughs> accents. He and apparently even in Danish he was nearly indecipherable. But he was a lovely man. Everybody liked him. Uh, uh, he, he was a young man. His brother was a, was a great soccer player and on Denmark's um, uh, Olympic team. Uh, there's a story, I couldn't track it down, so it's probably apocryphal, that um, uh, says, brother of soccer star wins wins important physics prize when Nels Bohr got the The soccer, the soccer attitude on everything. <laughs> so when they were living in a boarding house in, um, I think it was uh, in the north of England in the uh, late 19-teens, uh, it was a cheap boarding house and they were convinced the butter was being recycled. And, um, but like, not just from one day to the next, but for green, rancid, smelly butter and stuff. Well, to have essays research for which he, uh, decades later got the Nobel prize was little radioactive tracer. She put a little fragment of a, of, of a chemical into something and it slowly decays at a certain uh, uh, rate, which you can measure with either Geiger counters or the equivalent of Geiger counters. So he put some in the butter. I didn't tell anybody. And then he went away. A week, two weeks, three weeks later, he measured the butter. It was still in there, slightly decaying. And stuff. <laughs> um, I'm convinced that the uh, uh, English uh, landlady at the time drew from this the conclusion, do not let foreigners, and specifically not foreign physics students, into your boarding house again. Oh, yeah. Really, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, it just... It seems like such a perfect physics frat, trip, uh, frat uh, joke to play on your landlady. So Nels Bohr had a great research lab in, in Copenhagen for uh, a while. It was one of the world's greatest. And he had a number of Nobel laureates there, and many of them stored their, their gold medals there. Several of them were Jewish, and they knew that in World War II, there was going to be uh, trouble. Um, so some of them, uh, uh, Nels Bohr himself uh, was half Jewish. Um, uh, some of them escaped, but what, what do you do with the, with the gold medal? So what they did in, in Bohr's lab, true story, they dissolved it in acid. So when uh, Heisenberg and the other like German officials came by, they just saw a dull lab with uh, you know uh, wooden shelves, and there were jars of these sort of brownish liquid um, sitting around. Mm-hmm. Nobody thought that's where the Nobel Prize was because it's an important gold medal. After the war, they uh, they precipitated out and, and got the same amount of gold. So that was a clever way of hiding it. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I love it. I wanted to make sure that they got the gold back. That was my question, but you, you answered it. So uh, a, a, another woman, much more famous uh, than Henrietta, of course, Madame du Châtelet, uh, who, because of all the work that she did. But even so, other than your book and a few other things uh, on, on passionate minds about her and Voltaire, um, the, the amount of work she did and, and, and the brilliance with which she did it um, is really a standout in the history uh, of, of science for, for female scientists. So yes. So tell a little story been, about. Uh, tell us some stories yeah. about those two. <laughs> sure. So, so I've written um, I've written two books on Einstein, and in the first one, uh, there was almost just a few pages uh, about. I, I discovered uh, there was this woman who had come up with the the, the you know in, in the famous equation equals mc squared. There's little number two, the squared, and the person who came up with that idea, not the full equation, but the the squaring being important in physics. I saw in a little footnote somewhere she was an obscure. French thinker from the 1700s. And I thought, how did a woman from 200 years before Einstein come up with something yeah. that this great genius would use? So in one book, I, I managed to have like a few pages on her in my first book on Einstein. But I thought, this is so good. I have to make an entire uh, book about it. So I wrote a book called Passionate Minds, 
which is all about her. And there was a man who was a bit of a writer who she taught most of what he knew in philosophy and in bed. His name was Voltaire. Uh, Voltaire was quick to say that she was the greater part of the uh, partnership. Uh, you know the story about Rogers and Hammerstein. Uh, Rogers yeah. was asked who was the, the greater part of their partnership. And he said, in my case, it was guilt by association. Um, <laughs> so Voltaire was, uh, at, at one point, um, they were both trying to, for a competition set up by the, the equivalent of the, of the French Royal Society, uh, the Academy of Sciences in Paris. And uh, one summer, Voltaire was trying to do some work on the conservation of energy from the chateau that he and Madame Chatelet uh, shared in uh, northeastern France. And he was working really hard and not getting anywhere. And he just noticed that uh, Madame Emily was looked quite tired during the day. The reason she was tired is she was staying up all night doing her own experiments. And uh, uh, she submitted it anonymously and did much better than him. Um, <laughs> uh, Voltaire had the, you know, the typical grace of most, most men, you know, with when your ego is threatened by a woman who's uh, much more attractive than you and much smarter than you and more brilliant, there's only one thing to do. Insult her, have an affair with somebody else and dump her, which is what Voltaire <laughs> tried to do. One of the stupidest things in his life. She was a, she was a lovely woman. Um, she ended up uh, still doing her scientific research. At one point, she came this close to discovering infrared radiation. And she even gave a hint about it in some papers in the early 1700s. This is 100 years before Herschel got uh, closer with that in the 1800s. Um, could you imagine if in, on the Chateau in uh, northeastern France, they had, this is very close to understanding photography also. She was this close to doing it. And unfortunately, as we know, uh, around the world, there's often people with good uh, inventions, but you need a whole uh, machine to turn the invention into reality. You need other people, you need production engineers, you need finance. And in that beautiful chateau that she and Voltaire were at, they didn't have enough uh, equipment for that. It's a lovely story. I remember once reading in the uh, Tatler magazine in England that the, the actress Anne Hathaway was uh, reading the book and said, wow, this is a great story. It should be made into a film. I, I'm open to that someday. She was really a terrific lady, but it didn't have a happy ending. Um, after she, uh, uh, she and Voltaire broke up because of his pathetic ego, she, uh, she, got in, she became a, a bit of an alcoholic for a while, and she, she went off the booze. And unfortunately, she fell uh, in love with this uh, really dashing, much younger French poet. Uh, I dedicated this book to my daughter, and I was going to say to my beloved daughter, Sophie, watch out for French poets. And the thing is, when you first have a relationship like that, it's the younger person who has extra power because they're fit and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But once the relationship goes on for a little while, switches. So this young poet was saying, look, I've done this, these lovely love poems to you. And she said, oh, you know, that's good. She had lived with Voltaire for 10 years. He was the greatest yeah. writer in Europe. And then he said, oh, you know, maybe I can, we can go from this small rural place where we are, maybe in, into Paris. She and Voltaire had been like the pride of Paris. They had a beautiful house at one point on the Ile Saint-Louis. Um, and he realized he was being treated poorly. So he did a, a terrible thing. Um, he, well, he did two terrible things. One, as I mentioned, he wrote her some beautiful love poetry. And it really is great. I, I love translating it. I lived in France, so I could translate it. It's like the sun upon your bare arm in the morning. My delight is, is more fresh than the newest, blah, 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 the way French people do. Turned out, she found out later, he was recycling his love poems. He had done the exact same poem <laughs> to another woman two years before. Schmuck. Um, but then anyways, later, when she was in her 40s and he was maybe around 30, uh, she got pregnant. And um, uh, at that time, sadly, it was a, it was a death sentence. Uh, she knew women who got pregnant later on almost always had, because of the poor medicine of the time, now it's 
not, not necessarily any big deal. She knew it was really terrible. And she was doing, and, and he, again, he sort of left her. What's nice is she came back with Voltaire. Their, their love, in a sense, had become a friendship. And they just had this beautiful sharing in those last uh, few months. Um, and she, uh, her pregnancy went well, but she was really worried about what was going to happen. And to make it even worse, she was working on a major translation and reinterpretation of Isaac Newton's work. Uh, Newton had written mostly in Latin, the important stuff. She was translating into French, which was the, the big language on the continent, and developing some of the ideas. She was really a, a crucial intermediary between uh, uh, the, the science from the generation before her to the science even two or three generations later. And it was really hard, complex work. And Voltaire said she wasn't, she wasn't angry thinking that she was going to die, but she was just sad to feel she would have to leave before she was ready. And the three months left, two months left, one month left. And indeed, she died a few days after, uh, a few days after giving birth. Uh, Voltaire was, 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 was just broken. He used to wander around his house at night, just calling out for his Emily, his, his leading star. And he was especially broken because he was guilty. He had sort of driven her away by his uh, uh, weak ego. On the other hand, uh, his, his great book, um, uh, many of his works afterwards were either dedicated to her or if not dedicated to her. He discussed her very much in his writing, and she motivated him um, uh, from, from the afterlife. And her writings themselves, she wrote a book called Unhappiness, which was written when many of us write books like that, when she was really sad after Voltaire and before the French poet. And I, I recommend it. Great. And that's, it's a great book. Um... Really, I mean, that's how we met. You, you, you came here after that book to San Francisco. That's been fifteen years, ten years ago, or something like that. Um, so, you, you wrote another book uh, on, a, on another topic altogether. Before we get to your project that you're working on right now, um, but a little bit of time on the electricity book because it, it, there's another thing. Uh, you know, it would be much worse uh, if if we lost electricity than than the shutdown, for example. I mean, we have yeah. built up this thing, but it, it's also something very new. It, it hasn't been that long. You have a great analogy about about even a hundred years ago, one hundred twenty years ago. If you if you turn off all the electricity, it wouldn't change life very much. But by by just a hundred years ago, it already was indispensable. And now, um, you know, the only advantage to turning off the electricity is that AI can't take over. Um. <laughs> Right, 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 right. Yeah, so that, uh, th there's two things about that. Yes, we've, if we knew that 10 years from now, uh, electricity would no longer work, we might have a chance of getting other systems in operation, yeah. maybe 15 or 20 years. It would be really hard, but possibly. If, however, it happened overnight that electricity didn't work at all, like a blackout that nobody fixed, that really would be catastrophic. At the, you know, at the beginning of a blackout, it can be almost fun for the first few minutes. Like, oh, suddenly you talk to, remember in the old days when we had offices, you speak to your office mates or, or at home you get out the candles. And even for a little while, like, oh, uh, don't open the fridge, the, uh, the cold is going to go out. After a day or two, it becomes less of a joke. You know, the water that pump, the, the pumps for, for water, for toilets and stuff begins to go. Uh, if there was no electricity, that means radios after a while would go, cell phone batteries would go, police wouldn't be able to synchronize. It really, it, it really would be terrible chaos. Uh, airplanes couldn't take off. Fuel couldn't be pumped. Um, you know, it would be, it, would, it really would be that sound of, of, of a, uh, everything going down. And it's new. As I was mentioning in the book, uh, in 1903, 1905, in much of the world, it would have had, it would have been a slight inconvenience, but, but no effect. We're really, really tightly bound. As indeed, you know, clearly the internet has, has bound us in a similar way. Um, I'm, I was struck, uh, I, I suppose a little note for prospective uh, or uh, writers uh, in, uh, in our audience, 
I, I, I'm pleased that you that you like that was the beginning of the book. I imagined the world without electricity and what gradually happened. And then I go even yeah. further and imagine suppose electrical forces don't even work. You know, the mountains yeah. would be it's like the, the Nina Simone song. The mountains would you know cr- go down to the sea. The the earth would would separate apart and stuff. Um, well, that wasn't the first introduction I wrote. It was agony. I spent about three or four months trying one introduction after another. I began with Ted Williams, the uh, the batter, who worked on early radar and stuff. Dropped that. I did another one where I imagined how curious we look to outer space aliens, these that we're basically assemblages of electrons and other electric particles rambling around the world. I thought that was fairly good. I worked on that for a couple of weeks, dropped it. Only after incredible agony and a real lot of coffee. You remember the definition? Writers are machines for turning coffee into words. Um, <laughs> only after that did I come up with this. So I, I offer to any prospective writers in the audience that if you're really, really struggling, there's a chance there's nothing there, but there is a chance there's something there. You have to make the knights move off to the side and take a fresh angle. Mm-hmm. By the way, um, uh, I suppose it's a deeper principle. Uh, the move that I finally came to, to make the introduction to that book, The Electric Universe, work, I thought of my own father's life. Um, uh, he was old when I was born, so he was aware uh, as a little boy of the world, either largely before electricity or when electricity was sort of new and there were other technologies that were powerful. Um, and I've thought about him a lot. He, he, because he was older, he passed away when I was young. So often this night's move, the shift to a, a new way of acting on things, it won't be random. If somebody says, oh, you know, with the coronavirus, your firm has to do something different or you yourself, or need, if you're self-employed, needs to do something different. If it's random or you're copying somebody else, it doesn't work. I thought of Ted Williams because I thought, oh, everybody likes baseball, put in a baseball story and then segue into this. But that wasn't in my heart. Certainly not mm. from his team. I'm a, I'm, I'm a Chicago Cubs yeah. guy. But I only when I, so I say it took several months, but it's only when I looked into my heart and found the aspect of the story that was true to me, I was fascinated with the world of my father. I didn't know him when I was growing up. He passed away when I was 10. I wanted to understand his world. So the writing there came vividly from the heart. And that's a principle that applies in, in many fields. When you're trying different things, See if there's something that's core inside you that you wish to respond to, that you're drawn to, that you come to over and over. Uh, now, by itself, that could be indulgent. But if you could spin or twist that into something positive, you'll find this an area that you care about, and you will not run out of energy in, uh, in developing it. That's exactly what I was thinking. You, you, then you have energy. Then, you, then yes. you have a sufficient backing. And it's actually the whole... The whole um, economic value of, of spreading and decentralizing authority and power and everything like that and not telling people what to do is that if you keep everybody in, afraid and enslaved, well, yeah, they can, you can make them work, uh, but, but they have no energy for it. And so your whole exactly. society is, and I think, I think we'll learn this. And I, I, I you know, I, I have also think that we can uh, create safety nets and all the other stuff that work really well for society so that we don't lose people because of temporary problems, then they can have their energy to keep being productive later. But I, I don't see how any other authoritarian system is going to beat that in a competition. Just, just like don't educate the women, don't educate, you know, this, all those right. ideas are, are ridiculous, you know, in, in the short term, in the short term, you know, just the, the, the crank turning out or re, uh, standard equipment can do well like uh, making, right. say, a, a certain tank over and over and over. But in the right. long term, this uh, subtlety is, uh, is very different. And you need a certain amount of that. And, and the, uh, someone like George Orwell thought that that's going to be one of the few chances <clears throat> that can keep society from becoming a dictatorship. However strong a dictatorship is, they'll know they have to at least let a 
few oddball scientists, maybe financial people, but certainly scientists and engineers and technologists keep their own standards. Those people have to be able to try different ideas. They have to be a little bit uh, um, uh, willing to undermine authority uh, and stuff. And of course, they have to follow the reality principle. So those are little nodules or little subsets of, of both creativity and truth that no uh, a society can survive uh, without. In uh, uh, Germany, before um, before World War One, the research institutes were conservative, but they weren't. A, they couldn't be too authoritarian. They realized you had to give a certain amount of space. There's that well, in the way that around the world, very often it's at universities that you that the authorities are worried. Hmm, why these people are subversive? But of course, if you entirely close down the universities, you have nothing really strong coming from within. So that tension is can be a good thing about science. I just a couple of weeks ago uh, interviewed uh, Edward Frankel, a mathematician, teaches here, but he, he grew up in the Soviet Union. And he said mm-hmm. that the reason they went into math is because it was one of the few things that you could study that you didn't need uh, Marxist-Leninism. They didn't want that. They wanted people who, in physics and, and, and uh, math, who could then help them with their weapons. And so they had to learn what was really going on in the world everywhere. And so that was one of the areas for free. So you, and, and as a result of, of those kind of things, you do create a set of incentives so that the bright people tend yes. to move towards that. They might not have studied math otherwise, but that's what they study because that's the one place that they can be a little freer. And, and just oh, like you it, said, you know, no, no, no society can be totally authoritarian. It doesn't, it doesn't ever work. And, and it, it should show that it's probably not a good idea at all. I mean, I mean you don't want chaos, obviously. Uh, that, that, get, that gets worse. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but anyway, we're learning. Time goes by. We keep learning. And electricity is only 100 years old. Democracy is only a couple hundred years old. Uh, we, we, we'll, I hope we'll catch on a little bit more. Um, and I think your, one of your ideas uh, for this uh, horse chess move uh, or the night chess move um, is what you're working on right now. Um, the art of decency, the, 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 you know, something decency in a, in a world gone mean, you know, people are yes. more afraid. They're going to, they're, they're being more uh, callous than they've been, but you're, you're investigating and writing. I think it's due out in November. Um, for that kind of chess move. And I wonder whether you think this COVID-19 uh, pandemic will help people think that might be a good, not everybody, obviously. Some people think it's time to be meaner. But but the vast majority seem to be cooperative and therefore maybe open to this idea. So tell me what you're working on right now. Sure, and um, that's exactly the introduction to it. I, I've been delighted. I, I, I live in London, and I've been delighted at the number of spontaneous community organizations that have come up on the level of individual blocks, people wanting to bring food to old people who are stuck inside. And it's not just my magnificent neighborhood. It's many neighborhoods across the city. In the States, that's been happening a real lot. And so people are saying, wow, decency sort of works. Uh, anyway, so, so the book's called The Art of Fairness, um, What's the subtitle? Yes, and indeed, what you said, the power of decency in a world going mean. And uh, I was struck by the following thing. We know that terrible people can rise to the top. We know that in many organizations, not just politics, but in uh, companies and stuff, every of us, all of us have had bosses who were like just total nasty jerks. So we know that can happen and we know that can be successful. So that's one extreme. It's true. Now, there's another extreme of the nice guy or the nice woman who's really polite, but they're a bit of a nebbish. They, they agree with what, whatever they're asked to do. And we know that merely being nice won't work. Uh, that famous phrase, nice guys finish last, which by the way, is, becomes a chapter in the book, is there, there's a lot to that. If you're only nice, if you, if you accept what any, everybody asks you, you'll be pulled in all different directions. That's no good. Your Chicago so roots are showing with that one because that's a Leo DeRocher. Uh, he, he was the, the uh, manager of the Chicago Cubs. Exactly. You're, you're, you're entirely right. 
So the, the one extreme of being a total jerk works, but we don't always want to be like that. And the other extreme of being really nice and soft, that doesn't work. It's down there. So the question of the book is a simple question. Is there a path in between? Is there a way that you can be successful, not maybe as a quiet scholar off of the corner, that's sort of easy, but in a tough competitive field, like, I don't know, flying an airplane or uh, running a military division or in a big corporation or a huge construction site, something that's hard, competitive and difficult. Can you find, can you, can you thread that needle? Can you get, find an intermediate path? And it turns out it's really hard, but you can. And I found about a dozen people, men and women in different periods of time who did. And I tried to think, how did they do it? What are some of the advantages? Because we know there's many advantages to being a jerk. If you yell and intimidate people, you can often get your way. People get scared. Uh, you can often also make a quick decisions with no compunction. If you have to fire people, you can fire them quickly. So in, in extreme economic circumstances, there can be certain advantages to that. On the other hand, if you are a jerk, everybody hates your guts. The moment you begin to go down, they, the knives are really out. Nobody's on your side. Also, people are terrified of you. So usually it's the bossiest person on top who's the most clueless, who's the last one to know what's really going on. Well, again, leaving aside the soft, nice guy, but the intermediate person, you know the phrase firm but fair. I suppose that's what the book's about. Um, that person, they get fresh information comes to them. People aren't terrified. They're firm enough to be able to make a decision afterwards. So they'll be generous. So instead of getting um, uh, resentment back, they'll get gratitude. But of course, they're not naive. So running through the book, I point out that the seven or eight or 10 successful people I talk about, they all have street smarts. They say you can be really generous, but you got to audit what's coming back. Just make sure there's not a handful of free riders who are taking advantage of you. Um, and I was delighted to find that it works, uh, be it in small areas like an airline cop airplane cockpit, going all the way to huge international relations. That's really, really a, a great topic. Um, shall we finish? We're up with something on, on Einstein. I mean, you, you, you've... You, you wrote another book uh, just on the equation, E equals MC squared, and how that, that was the second book on Einstein that you, you worked on. Um, uh, which one came first? The, uh, Einstein, E equals MC squared came first, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. reason for that is I remember uh, seeing something by Stephen Hawking, who uh, said that if you uh, put an equation in a book, the sales go down by half. <laughs> and I thought, let's see. Let's see what happens. Let me, let me bring it on. Let me challenge Steve. Come on, Stephen. Bring it on. I thought, what if I put an equation on the title? Let's, let's challenge that. Um, Did you so know it, that you challenged him this way and one or not? Uh, in fact, I, when I was young, I had the great honor of meeting uh, Stephen Hawking. We, uh, I was doing uh, relativity at uh, Chicago, and he was in the mid-1970s. And he came. At that point, I think he, was, uh, he walked with a stick. And what's often misunderstood from his later life, sort of what you were saying about Einstein, he was funny. There's a type of very ironic, dry-witted uh, British guy in his 20s or 30s, and that was Hawking. So he had a lovely, wry, dry sense of humor. He was, in that sense, a good guy. And it was, yeah, so the first book was about equals MC squared. And I wanted to, again, tying in with, you know, you often write well when there's deep principles. I'd often wondered... What was the underlying reality that uh, my late father could see and that I could see also, even though I couldn't see him? You know, uh, the, the French poet, Saint-Exupéry, once said, yep. uh, 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 love isn't looking to, in each other's eyes, it's looking together in the same direction. And I find that really beautiful. So when I was young, I used to look up at the sky or think about people. And I thought, oh, I wonder, what did my dad make of those things? I would never know. So be, I became fascinated with trying to understand uh, things that sort of surround our world that we can all access at different times. And one of the most famous ones is 
the idea of the ideas of relativity and all these ideas of physics. And I thought describing all that's really hard. I didn't want to just summarize the textbooks I'd studied when I was younger. But I thought, what if I could take one aspect? What if I could take the most famous equation in the world, equals MC squared? And how can I make that interesting for people? So one way people try to do it is in a friendly way with jokes and stuff, summarize a textbook. That wasn't going to work. The other way that people try to do is they, they humanize the individuals, which is along, the, along with the science, you tell a funny story about Einstein or his clothes, but that wouldn't work either. It's a distraction. So then I thought, what if I could find a way to make the, the equation itself the, the thing that's the biography about? I think subtitle the biography of an equation. And what if I could find like the essence of Einstein for that? So anyway, so I used that equation to, uh, to carry along. The story was carried along. Where did this equation come from? Uh, what was its birth like? Did it have a difficult adolescence? What happened when it grew up? And then you become mm-hmm. intrigued. And it was. It was very intriguing. It was a great uh, uh, way of showing how the equation, especially all, all the effects of it and how everybody used it and how it was always going on the whole time. But but that uh, was a great insight into something that, that people take. And I, I should not probably ask you such a difficult question as the last one, but so uh, the speed of light squared, you know, I mean, how, how can something go faster than the speed of light? Ah, uh, um, <laughs> so um, uh, uh, the, um, th- this is a good question. Uh, were I better, I could answer while standing on one foot. Instead, I shall answer <laughs> sitting in a chair in London. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the equation uh, equals mc squared, the, uh, the way of thinking of it, for the moment, forget the c squared. Uh, just say there's E on one side, which stands for energy, and M on the other, which stands for mass. Um, so suppose I'm holding a piece of paper in my hand that's a little bit of mass, and the question is, how much energy is inside it? We know that if you burn it, with a, a, a put a match to it, a certain amount of energy comes out. And uh, But we also know that if you break apart the atoms inside, even more energy comes out. So the question is, how much energy is in there? So there's some relation between energy and mass. We know that coal, for example, like a pound of coal, produces more energy than, say, a, a pound of... Um, I don't know, a pound of paper. And I'm guessing a pound of uh, gunpowder would produce even more. So there's some relation fundamentally between energy and mass. So you need an exchange rate. So for example, there's a relation between pounds and, uh, and dollars. I don't know what the relation right. is, 1.3 or something. There's a relation between Fahrenheit and centigrade or between yen and dollars. So you need an exchange rate. And it turns out Einstein thought about it. And for reasons for which you would have to buy the book, he, he realized that the exchange rate is a certain number. And, and it isn't like a little bit of mass becomes a little bit of energy. It's like a little bit of mass becomes a huge amount of energy. So the exchange rate right. isn't like two to one or five to one or a thousand to one. It isn't even a million to one. It's much bigger. I mean, this depends on the unit you're using, but, but the, the idea holds. And for various technical reasons, uh, he found that the exchange rate, the amount of how much energy you'll get off from a certain amount of mass, you take the amount of mass you have and you multiply by this huge number to get the energy. I, I think I give the image of, imagine there's somebody riding a bicycle into a tunnel, and when they come out of the other side, it's not a slightly bigger bicycle, it's a huge, enormous Airbus 380 airplane coming out. So what's the <laughs> multiplier? What's the multiplier there? And it turns out, it's the, uh, the, the speed of light is, uh, uh, in miles an hour, is about 670 million miles an hour. So if you take, say, one unit of, of mass and multiply it by 670 million, you get a lot of energy. Turns out, if you take the speed of light and square it, you get a Humongous number, 670 million squared. I know I'm playing around with units, but again, the idea holds. So what, in the equation, it's E equals M times this really big number. So to find out how much energy you get from a little bit of mass, such as uranium or plutonium, such as the uranium 
you know, which was dropped over Japan in 1945, you take that little bit of mass, those few uh, uh, grams of, of mass, if you turn that into energy, you don't multiply it by three or by five or by a thousand, you multiply it by this huge number, which is summarized by the symbols uh, C squared. And in fact, yeah. the, 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 um, the fulcrum of the book is the dropping of the atomic bomb over Japan uh, in, in 1945. The flash was so powerful, a, uh, just a few grams of matter went out of existence. A few grams of matter were turned into energy. The flash hit the moon and bounced back. Hit the moon and bounced back. And it's a great image. And in addition to that, um, it makes it very clear that we don't really have an energy crisis because we have lots of mass that we could turn into energy. It's just a knowledge uh, crisis. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do it safely? If you're a futurist, um, you know, how we deal with energy, how far we get past electricity, how far we move with other things is going to make our future almost incomprehensible to us in the 21st I, I century. I suppose maybe circling back to what you were saying at the beginning about the virus, I think the key yeah. lesson that people uh, learned in 1945 was that you could transform society. Uh, in Britain or in America, you could take several million healthy young men out of society, you know, put them overseas in war, and yet the society is richer and the factories are working better than ever before. There's more food, there's more equipment. How could that happen? So remember, suppose, how long has this been? Two months? Suppose three months ago, somebody said, George, I know what we can do. We can have almost all the cars in San Francisco stop driving and air pollution could go down substantially. Or we can stop the airplanes flying. You say, yeah, 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 right, as if that's going to happen. We've now right. shown that you can't. So clearly that particular solution isn't stable. But we've now shown, wow, you can do these sorts of things. Uh, or you can uh, you can uh, take certain investments from the future and make them out as, um, as cash transfers today. Uh, you have to do it well, but these are things that nobody ever thought could be done. So for a little while, we have this immense sense of, I don't want to say mastery because that's arrogant, but an awareness that, wow, we really can transform the world. We really, if we put our minds to it, can do extraordinary things. Let's hope we're led in the right direction to do these extraordinary things. Yes. We're not stuck. We need good leadership. Thanks for, for providing a lot of the insight that, that uh, is helpful to the leadership of Phil Reed. So uh, thank you very, very much, David. That was just great. Uh, and uh, so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 